Karin Tidbeck lives in Sweden where they work as a translator and creative writing teacher and write fiction in Swedish and in English. They are the author of the novels Amatka, Memory Theater and short story collection Jagannath. Their work has received the Campbell Award and the SF and Fantasy Translation Award as well as several nominations including for the World Fantasy Award. In this conversation Karin spoke about her writing in Swedish and in English, speculative fiction, self-translation and the book Jagannath. Using the link given in the show notes you can buy the book Jagannath. Please share your feedback on this episode either on the Spotify app or through the link provided in the show notes. You can follow Harshaniyam podcast on Spotify, Apple or search any of your favorite podcasting apps. Welcome to our podcast Harshaniyam Karin. Thank you very much. Thank you. What made you choose a career in storytelling? I've always told stories. Uh I have my first story saved in a box somewhere which I wrote when I was 6 years old, which was about two poor children who find they find a golden coin and they buy everything they want and then they live ha- happily ever after. My parents were very confused by this because they're socialists. So they apparently they had a capitalist kid at home. Um but the thing is throughout my life I've been good at two things which is storytelling and customer service. So that's what I've been doing. I've been telling stories because I can't stop telling stories and because it feels important to tell stories. But I couldn't make a living of it, so I became really really good at customer service in various places. So I'm very good at being calm when people yell at me over the phone. Um but so one of the reasons I chose a career in storytelling is because I really really did not want to work in customer service. To be to be more serious it's because it feels like the most important thing I can do. Yeah. When it comes to the books that you wrote memory theater amatka and jagannath though they deal with uh, social themes serious social themes uh, they are told in the medium of uh, speculative fiction almost all are why are you drawn to speculative fiction i have never been interested in anything else so i get that question from people mostly people who don't read a lot of speculative fiction they want to know why do you write this kind of stuff but the thing is from ever since i was a child i've preferred speculative fiction and the way i see it is that speculative fiction offers alternatives visions uh ways to think about the world that are different that can offer new perspectives uh-huh. and um I know a lot of people think about speculative fiction as escapism and I think that is a complete misunderstanding. I mean, yes, it can be escapism, but at the same time it can also be a place where you go and find the tools you need out in the real world. 
It's a place where you go to find support, find visions, to find new ways to think about the world. And that was make, that's what makes it so incredibly special to me. Uh, when I read like realist fiction that only takes place in our world, I am usually just so bored. I, I am so bored on the on the level that I want to, you know, dig my eyes out with a spoon or something because I live this every day. I don't want to read about it as well. It's like going into a restaurant and ordering porridge when you could order, you know, luxury food of some kind. So I eat porridge every day in reality, and then when I when I write something or when I pick up a book, I want something different. Again, the interesting thing is uh, what you write is not fantasy. It's about the real world. Yeah, I mean, I don't really think about genre when I write. Uh, I write something and then someone else will come up to me and say, you wrote this. This is science fiction. Uh, this is a horror story. This is a fantasy story. And uh, I'm like, okay, fair enough. So yes, I do write about the real world, but I also write about other worlds and I don't make uh, very firm distinctions. Who are the authors you love or you read in speculative fiction initially? Or you have been reading now? Um, you know, from any point in my life? Yes. Okay. So the first author who really made an impression was um, Finnish-Swedish author called Tove Jansson, who wrote The Moomin Book. On the outside, they're children's books, but they are children's books about very sort of big themes, dark themes. It's about life, it's about difficult choices, it's about loneliness, it's about worrying about catastrophes, it's about growing up, all that kind of stuff. And... Um, it just made an impression because this writer, Tove, she could talk to children about subjects that no other adults would talk to us about. So there was that. And then I think the next writer who was important to me was Ursula Le Guin, who was a science fiction writer, and she wrote fantasy as well. And uh, she sort of opened my mind to different ways of telling a story, how you can talk to the reader, how you can describe something and how you can think about the way society functions and how you can think about alternatives to the, w the way we live now. And I think the third one is probably Neil Gaiman. Because uh, I grew up, I, I discovered the Sandman comics when I was 15 and they were transformative for me because they changed the way that I thought about imagination and dreaming. So those three are probably the big ones. Yeah. I read these stories in Jagannath. Though the world you create is a fantasy world, there are some fantasy elements. But I felt uh, you are more interested in characters how they respond to the situation than actual, you know, quote-unquote plot. Um, my stories always start with the character. They might start with a phenomenon, but there's always a character involved. 
So I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I played role-playing games since I was a child. So I'm very used to telling stories from a character's point of view, and I'm very used to pretending to be different kinds of characters. So when I write stories, I sort of just imagine myself to be the people in the stories. And I write from their point of view. I pretend to be them. And what happens in the story is just a sort of natural consequence of who the characters are, what they want, and what they would like to do, or what they wouldn't like to do. So it's sort of, I don't really make, I sort of make plots up as I go along. I don't think about stuff a lot beforehand. It's just in the course of me telling a story, I discover that, okay, this character apparently she wants to do that thing very, very badly. And this other character kind of doesn't want her to. So those two are going to have a problem and I'm going to have to figure out how. You were in the gaming industry for a long time. Yeah, I sort of dip in and out. Tell us how it influenced you as a writer and a translator. I, like I said, I've played role-playing games since I was a child. And I've also played, um, I still do, live-action role-playing. So it's basically role-playing, but you dress up as your character. And you act, uh, you act the whole thing out instead of just sitting at a table. So you can dress up. Sometimes you don't dress up. Sometimes you just pretend. So it's very much like a theater play without an audience. And it's improvisational theater, so there's not actually a script. But I played role-playing games on computer. Yeah? So Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, there is one, one game which I really like. That was about two decades ago, called uh, Elder Scrolls Morrowind. Oh, I love that one. Yes, so great. I think it was kind of a series. There used to be one after the other, one after the other they used to come. Now... What I find very interesting is I'm trying to understand what this live-action role-playing game is. You uh -huh. said it's all improvisation. It's all improvisation. But uh, there in the computer, the way they program it is that uh, depending on the response the other guy gives, there will be options. Mm -hmm. Since you played the game, you know, there are four or five options you have to choose. So there won't be any options like this? It is free for all improvisation? It is. I mean, you and I, we can pretend that we're two people doing a podcast. Uh -huh. Yeah. So uh, I'm pretending right now to be a writer and you're pretending to be a podcaster. Correct. And um, you ask me a question and I'm going to think, well, how would, how would my character reply to this question? And so that's what I do. So it's, it's, it's very, very simple, really. Um, it's just pretending that you are someone else and you do what that person would do if they were, if they were in a specific kind of circumstance. So uh, with all this said, live action role playing is basically what made me a writer. Because I was, it was back in 1999, I'd already been writing stories on and off. But in 1999, I was a character writer for uh, a live-action role-playing game, uh, which was very sort of avant-garde. It was about humans and angels at an institute. And 
we all wrote character descriptions that people would get so that they could act these characters out. And all my character descriptions turned into short stories. Okay. So, yeah, so I realized, okay, this is apparently what I, I'm, I'm good at writing and I'm good at writing for gaming. So I did both. So I wrote short stories and then sort of over the course of the years, I've, because I know a lot of role players and I know a lot of gamers, I've sort of been pulled into various kinds of projects. So I've written a solo adventure that you play on your phone. And uh, I've written an interactive uh, story. It's, a, it's an, an interactive adaptation of Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, yeah. The fairy tale. Yeah. And the story changes depending on the reaction of people who are listening to it. Is it on an app or...? Uh... No, that was actually what they did. I wrote the script along with a couple of other people. And then there were technical people who used sort of, they made hats that reacted to brain waves. So uh, people who, the, the audience put these hats on and the hats reacted to the brain waves. And depe depending on what brain waves, which way was in the majority, uh, the story changed. Like they, I think they call it haptic, with the touch and all it changes. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Race car simulation is it? But doing it with brain waves is something extraordinary, actually. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun. So it was very much like you're playing a role playing game on computer on, on your computer. Uh huh. But instead of clicking, um, the game sort of decides which choice you're taking depending on you know what your brain is doing at the time. So the technology came from, um, this is like 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, but um, the technology came from Japanese cat ear uh, things that you put on and they would move. Right, 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 right. I get it. Yeah. They would move differently. I'm making gestures here. I'm sorry, the listener can't see it. <laughs> right. Okay. okay. So, so they adapted that technology. So I've done stuff like that to put it short. And I, last year I wrote a uh, complete role-playing adventure for the role-playing game Call of Cthulhu, which is based on uh, the writer H.P. Lovecraft's universe. So it's horror. And that's going to be out sometime this fall. That's a computer game or how is it? No, it's tabletop role-playing game. Tabletop role-playing game. Oh. Yes like Dungeons and Dragons, except it's very evil and gives you anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> Our life is full of anxiety. Don't worry about it. They will get used to it. Yeah, but at least in this life, you usually don't have to worry about tentacles, right? <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> nope. Yeah. Uh, right. So that's pretty much my, my career as a um, gaming storyteller as well. And I'm, I hope I get to do other stuff later on. I always want to try new ways and new ways of telling a story. The stories uh, that I read from the book, uh, they are nothing like any that I have ever read before. The way it is constructed, the way it is constructed. I, mean, I read a bit of speculative fiction, and as I told you earlier, of course, realist fiction you keep reading, right? 
but uh, mixing it so well to make a very very legible uh, a story with deep layers normally things that i read on speculative fiction they are not very deep more most of it anyway uh, what i read is about more of entertaining speculative fiction i'm interested in actually the creative process how do you go about creating it i am interested in that um so my creative process is extremely messy extremely messy um so what i do is that i write with pen and paper every day most days and i have a ton of notebooks so i what i do is i write uh, i just write down whatever comes into my head and i do this for at least 15 or 20 minutes and it's an it's basically it's a very basic exercise you put your pen on the paper and you're not allowed to lift the pen from the paper until the timer rings and you are not allowed to stop writing so you have to sort of write everything down and when you do that when uh when you're not allowed to stop strange things can happen on the paper because sometimes you uh, sometimes all i get is i am hungry what am i supposed to eat for dinner my my knee is itchy blah 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 but sometimes a scene will show up or a sentence or you know um an image and i will just take that image and i'll start writing more about it so, so that's how it starts So with one of the stories in um in the in the collection I had this one sentence float into my mind which is a doctor fell in love with an airship and I don't know where that came from but I wrote it it came from somewhere in my brain and then I had to find out what what was that about who's the doctor who's the airship what's going on here so that's the first step of the process and then i write all the good stuff that i can that that sort of comes to my mind like all the interesting scenes all the interesting dialogue um all the interesting images and then i have to puzzle them together because i never write from the beginning to the end i always write sort of in hopscotch fashion it just i bounce back and forth like a ping pong ball uh so most of the work is me having to sort of glue all these small pieces together to form a story and that takes time so it's um in some ways it's a terrible method because it takes so much time and it's so disorganized but in other ways i sort of i think i i find ideas that i wouldn't find if i was planning everything So that's that's how I do it. It's sort of it's the difference between coming up with an idea and discovering I- an idea. So I'm like I'm I'm discovering I'm lis- basically just listening to my head. I'm discovering things that live inside of my head and I write them down. So are there any particular preferred time or preferred location for this to get into that kind of mood or Um because I am you know I'm an adult and I have to work for a living so I have to go to my office. <laughs> I have an office with a door I can close. 
So I go to my office um, and I sit down and this is the first thing I do during the day. I sit down and I write uh, by hand to see if something happens. And then when I'm done with that, I go on with the rest of my workday. So there's not really, I can't really choose what time is good. It's just when I go to work, this is the first thing I have to do. This uh, Jagannath, the stories that you wrote, I think uh, you have done it over a period of time. I think, I don't know, it, it took you some years to complete all these stories, right? How many years it took? So that collection is sort of like a greatest hits um, from a decade of writing. Decade of writing. Yes. So the first story I wrote in that, I think that was Rebecca. I was 24 or something when I wrote that one. And then I wrote stories over the years. And the last one I wrote was Reindeer Mountain, which is in the collection. So it's sort of my, my best stuff over over the course of 10 years. 10 years. And all these, uh, they were published in magazines or they were coming straight into? So most of them were published in magazines, either in Swedish or in English. Um, but there were some of them that had never been published before. What was your experience of getting the stories into publishing? What were the difficulties, challenges you had? And what exactly was the process? So the process was partly, I mean, I had a process in Sweden and I had a process in the US. So the Swedish process was I had this collection um, that would later that I would later translate. But I had this collection in Swedish and I sent it to lots of different publishers and they all rejected it. Wow. Until <laughs> that's that, that's how it works. So you get rejected lots and lots of times. And then if you're lucky, someone actually wants the manuscript. And in the end, there was this micro-publisher in Sweden who wanted the manuscript. So they published it. And it sold maybe 100 copies. And then the publisher vanished off the face of the earth. He stopped replying to emails. He was not reachable on the phone. He just, poof, gone. So... That was the Swedish, the first part of the Swedish story. And then I went to a creative writing course in San Diego in the US called Clarion. And that's where the US part of the story started. And I did this and no one should take this as advice for how to get published in the US because I did it the wrong way around completely. <laughs> I did everything wrong. So... I was at this course and we had teachers every week. There were editors, or writers or scholars. And for the last two weeks, we had a couple of editors, uh, um, Anne and Jeff Vandermeer, who are sort of editors and Jeff is a writer as well. And I was complaining to them about how my Swedish collection had just, you know, vanished. It just nothing happened with it. And they said, so how about you translate the collection and we look at it and you add some more stories. So I did that and they said, let's, let's publish it. And that's absolutely not how it usually happens because in the US usually you have to find an agent. But I didn't have one. But uh, it turns out that this collection in the US, the same that had sold like 100 copies in Sweden, 
this went really well in the US. And after a while, my uh, Jeff and Anne said that, okay, you need an agent. <laughs> so they helped me find an agent. Um, which again is completely the wrong way to go about it. But here we are. And then, so, so then suddenly I had an agent. And then in, back in Sweden, I'm sorry, this is very complicated. Back in Sweden, I uh, published, um, there was a publisher that I had sold a couple of short stories to. And they said, so we have an opening to publish a novel next year. Do you have a novel? I did not have a novel. I had 60 pages of something. So I said, yes, I have a novel. <laughs> I'm just going to edit it for a bit. <laughs> so they gave me a month to, to edit it. And I wrote the rest of the novel in a complete panic. It's not, I mean, it's not what it sounds like because I'd been working on the novel as a poetry collection and then as a short story collection, but then I just made it into a novel in very few weeks. It was terrible, but they published it and it didn't sell. <laughs> so, um, and by this point, I was obviously very angry at the Swedish publishing industry. Yeah. I, I got really angry, so I translated Amatka into English. It was it was born out of rage and desperation because no one would buy it in Sweden. So I translated that, and I also hired um, a translator who was bilingual in Swedish and English to help me sort of get it right. And then, because I, now I had an agent, so she took that novel and she sold it to a publishing house. And from then on, I sort of, now I'm doing it traditionally, so to speak. <laughs> Except I'm not, because I'm writing in English when my first language is Swedish. And you're not supposed to do that, but I, here I am. I read a book, uh, it is called Translating Myself and Others. Some of these stories that you wrote, like you just mentioned, they were written in Swedish and some of them straight into English. But the Swedish ones also you had to translate into English. Uh, what has been your experience of self-translation? How difficult or how easy? I I think the way Jampalari states, it is a very difficult exercise. It is very difficult. Um, the um, The good thing is that I can always talk to the writer about what they meant. I can always ask, what, what were you thinking when you wrote this? Uh, not a problem. Um, the drawback is that I am too deep inside my own text. Um, so something happens when an external translator translates your stuff. I think it's often better because they have, they sort of get a bird's eye view of what it is that you're doing. So what I did, I didn't think of myself as translating the texts. I more thought of myself as writing the stories again in another language. If that, it's, there's a distinction there and I hope it makes sense when I say it. 
so it was very difficult, especially difficult the um, the different cultural phenomena that don't really translate into English. Yeah. When you do a translation of your own story, I don't think it is so easy to take liberties and try to change it. It's very, very tempting because I have the writer right here. I can ask them whenever, could we change this a bit? Um, and it's very, very tempting to rewrite the story, but I really try not to. Um, I think the only thing I do is that sometimes when I translate the story, I can see that here's a plot hole or this sentence could be better written or this could be clarified better, but I don't actually change the story. You wrote an afterword for this book. Right? I did. So one of the very well written afterwords I really like. Thank you. All the translations, I always look first whether there is a forward or afterward by the translator. So you talked about uh, some challenges that you faced in Jagannath. Yes. If I were to say while translating it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether strictly I should call it a translation, right? But anyway, it's a translation, a kind of translation. It's kind of a translation, yes. So yeah. please uh, elaborate uh, those challenges that you face with some specific examples. So the most difficult things for me were cultural concepts. Like we, we can, I mean, we have expressions that if I use this word, then a Swedish reader will understand like, okay, it means this, and it also has this feeling attached to it and these memories and these cultural values. Um, and there's no direct analog in English that makes things very difficult. So there's one, which is actually quite funny. There's a, there's a music genre in Swedish or in Sweden called dansband. Uh, which is in one of the stories that I had to translate. And I couldn't you, just, the translation in, in English would be dance band, but it doesn't really mean anything. So instead I had to explain what kind of feeling you get when you hear the music. Uh, who, what kind of music is this and what kind of images do, does it evoke? And then, um, so it's stuff like that. There's also... There's this word I think I wrote about in the collection, via mood, which is a feeling, um, which is a sort of melancholy nostalgia, but it's not quite sad. It is about a sort of longing, and a friend of mine called it smiling through tears. It's a sort of... Um, th there are words in other languages that have sort of the same... Um, the same connotation, but English doesn't quite have it. So it's it's nuances like that are difficult to get over into English. And then obviously there's various clothing, garments, and um, some dialectal words that I used in a couple of the stories that I couldn't translate, so I left them in in in, in Swedish. Um, and it doesn't probably doesn't make sense to an English speaking reader, but I know it's there. Like I will have, I, I, there is one of the stories, Reindeer Mountain, where 
an old man calls another person a very, very dialectal word for girl, and it means something in Swedish. It doesn't mean anything in English, and it's very frustrating to know that people won't pick up on it. But I need it to be in there. Okay. At the end of it, uh, how did you you feel? You got frustrated or you were okay with that? Or how was it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I did. I did the best I could. Okay. okay. And it's been easier when I, when I, like I wrote the memory theater in English, which made it easier because I didn't have to s jump through the translation hoop. I could um, write immediately, sort of write my way around certain subjects. Right, right. We will come to the title of the book. Mm -hmm. So, Jagannath. Jagannath yes. is a Hindu god's name. Mm -hmm. The meaning is very obvious. The lord of the universe is Jagannath. Right? Exactly. Um why did you have that name in mind and why did you what is your familiarity with the hindu religion or it has come about in a different way or how is it so there there're like different threads that connect to this uh this title one of them is that i i studied comparative religion at the university which is where i encountered hinduism uh and it was part of my education and um so there was that i was already familiar with hindu mythology and symbolism and then i wrote the story at this creative writing workshop in san diego and i wrote it we we had to write one story a week at so break that speed really we had to produce one story a week and this draft i wrote it took me a few hours, I think. I just banged it out. And the original title was Juggernaut, as in the English spelling. And um, But then I thought back to my Hinduism studies. And I thought about the root of the word Juggernaut, which is Jagannath, which is the Lord of the Universe. And that's how I thought about the biological machine in the story that creature was pretty much the universe. But I will say that I would not have chosen that title today because I think it is partly because it doesn't really represent the collection as a whole. And I don't think that the story doesn't, you know, it, the story doesn't really deserve the title. It's not accurate and it's like, I can only explain it as the story isn't worthy of the title Jagannath. But I can't go back and change it now. And the reason the collection was called Jagannath is because the editors thought they chose between Reindeer Mountain or Jagannath. And they thought it was a better title. And I trusted them with this because I had never been published in the U.S. before. But um, if the same process, if this had happened today, I would have made a different choice. Because, as I said, I think 
um, my collection isn't really worthy of the name. Uh, but ultimately it sold well. <laughs> it did, but um, really? yeah. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I think that's a difficult choice to make because majority of uh, short story collections mm. uh, that I read it in English and sometimes I really wonder uh, they have the one of the stories as the title of the book. Yes. Which I don't think it's really required. I, I don't know why they make that choice. Uh, uh, probably the reason could be there is no common thread binding all the stories so they can't give a particular name. I don't know. No, it's... Um... It's very rare that I find a short story collection that doesn't have one of the story titles as its name. You're right. Yeah. Now, when it comes to the stories, right? Beatrice is girl choosing to live with a machine. It's beautifully conceived. Thank you. The endings that you have, these are not twisted endings or you know, endings, endings in the artificial type where you give it a shock to the reader or these are properly done in <laughs> that's a very nice compliment thank you so i i was writing and there was a sentence that that came into my head which was doctor fell in love with an airship and um i just got that image into my my head that okay so there is this actual doctor who falls in love with an actual airship so the airship is probably sentient in some way or another and i can't really tell you where, where all that came from. It just, it, it lived in my head. I wrote it down. And I sort of watched the story unfold as I was writing it. And that's how it is with a lot of my stories is that I don't feel that I have direct control of where the story is going. It just comes out. And as soon as I wrote down some stuff about the doctor and the airship, I realized, okay, there's someone else in the story. There's a woman who has a happy relationship with the steam engine. And their relationship is very, I mean, it's very happy. It's consensual. They love each other very much. The only problem is that one of them is a steam engine. That's, that's the only problem they have. Um, so I can't really tell you where it came from, this story. It was, it's, to, it seemed like a good idea at the time. It, it seemed like a good idea at the time to write this. It was natural. It was, it was the completely logical thing to write. And I had a lot of fun sort of putting that story in the context of um, somewhere in kind of Germany, but not quite. Um, that had a world exhibition, which might have been in Germany, or it might have been in Paris, because there was one in Paris at around the same time. And um, I also had fun sort of writing about this, this doctor who seems to be a very friendly character, who just happens to fall in love with, with an airship. But as I wrote the story, I realized that he is a terrible person. He's an absolutely terrible person. Um, but apparently that's what I had to write. And it turned out to be a very dark story, which also was not my intentions, because when I started writing it, I thought it was going to be cute. 
it was not cute. So Beatrice is a perfect example of what happens when my brain makes noises and I just take notes. The connection between Franz Hiller in Beatrice uh, and uh, these Herz in the book and uh, is an extension of Franz Hiller? No, he isn't. But I wrote them around the same time. And I wrote those two at the same time as Who is Arvid Pekon? So I think at the time I was just fascinated, fascinated by these, you know, sort of weird, uh, misfit, middle-aged men. Who, and I, I let weird stuff happen to them. They was just, I, apparently I needed to write about these guys for a while, odd, odd men. So most of my stories, there, there are not very many stories that actually have an intertextual element. Um, when you look at the uh, when, when you look at the stories in Jagannath, there is Augusta Prima and Aunt. Those two take place in the same world because they came from the same inspirational source. Really, I had been I organized a live action role playing game back in two thousand five, which was. Uh, in many ways, it was about fairies and humans and about their relationship. And a few years after, I that, that world sort of lived on inside my head and I had to write something about it. So they sort of have, they have a common starting point. The way the stories are arranged. I felt uh, the stories get weirder and weirder and weirder. Yes, yes. That was the point. <laughs> that was absolutely the point. No, it's, uh, I discussed it with my editors, uh, especially Jeff, and Jeff said that, okay, so we're going to start out with the least weird story, and we're going to end up with the most weird story, so that the sort of, we, we sort of lure the reader in. They start out reading Beatrice, thinking, no, this is not too bad. Oh, I can read this. And then we move on into weirder and weirder territory. And at the end, hopefully the reader is sort of just so deep inside that they can't find the way out. And they just have to read on to the end. Now, tell us about uh, contemporary Swedish fiction. So what I can only really talk about speculative Swedish fiction. It's, it seems to be common for many other countries as well, but speculative fiction isn't seen as serious fiction, as real literature. Um, so it's been very difficult for speculative fiction writers to get picked up by the big publishers, which means that um, there have been a lot of self-published books and now uh, there are several very good independent publishers that publish spe speculative fiction. So we don't really trust the big publishers <laughs> because we're, we're like, they, they have no idea what speculative fiction is. So a lot of us publish um, with indie publish, publishers or self-publish. Um, but there are a lot of us and the hope is that the bigger publishers will sort of realize what's going on and that they 
I know that from inside sources tell me that the reason the big publishers aren't really picking up speculative fiction is that they don't have the competence. They just they don't have they don't have any people who know about this stuff, and they think yeah and 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 they think that speculative fiction is something different than what it really is. They think it's alien lit- literature. Like it, it's it's like this is so weird we don't understand any of it. When in fact, when you look at what speculative fiction is, it is so many different things. It's it's a spectrum. It's like it's like if you said that all crime novels are the same, that would be a lie. Yeah, or all realist novels are the same, which is absolutely not true either. I mean, nothing is new under the sun, right? People have written so many different stories. They have written, I mean, there's always, obviously, someone out there has written already about intelligent dolphins. Someone has written about uploading your consciousness into the cloud. Um, so I know that a lot of sort of writers who are just beginning are discouraged and think that, oh, this has already been done. Uh, I can't do this. It's not cool enough. It's not interesting enough. But the thing is, the only one who can, I mean, I, I, like I would tell someone that, okay, so someone has already written about intelligent dolphins, but they haven't written about your intelligent dolphins. So you can take a cliche. It doesn't matter if it's a cliche. You are the only one who can tell your story. And that is the biggest pitfall I have seen. I mean, I'm, I, teach creative writing as well and is it's the biggest error i have seen people make which is to think that their stories aren't good enough wonderful now please read a paragraph or two from jagannath any story that you choose to read sure english first and then swedish please so um which one would you like me to read from do you have a favorite my favorite would be beatrice beatrice okay so how about i can just read the uh, the two first paragraphs in english and swedish okay so i'll start out with the english one first franz hiller a physician fell in love with an airship He was visiting a fair in Berlin to see the wonders of the modern age that were on display. Automobiles, propeller planes, mechanical servants, difference engines, and other things that would accompany man into the future. The airship was moored in the middle of the aviation exhibit. According to the small sign by the cordon, her name was Beatrice. In contrast to the large commercial airships, Beatrice is built for a maximum of two passengers. An excellent choice for those who live far from public airship masts or do not wish to be crowded in with strangers. Manufacturing will start soon. Order yours today from Le Fleur et Fille. Okay, so I'm going to do that in Swedish. And I'm going to... See, it's slightly different in Swedish. This is going to be interesting. Läkaren Franz Hiller blev förälskad i ett luftskepp. Han var på en mässa i Berlin där det förevisades automobiler, 
propellerplan, mekaniska bekämper, hålportsmaskiner och annat som skulle föra den moderna människan in i framtiden. Luftskeppet stod förankrat mitt i hallen för flygmaskiner. Enligt den lilla skylten vid avspärrningen hette hon Beatrice. Till skillnad från de stora kommersiella luftskeppen är Beatrice anpassad för en till två passagerare. Utmärkt lämpad för den som har långt till närmaste publik Zeppelinmast eller inte vill trängas med främmande resenärer. Tillverkning startar inom kort. Beställ ditt exemplar redan nu. Thank you, thank you Karin. It's been wonderful listening to you. I loved the book and I just loved the conversation. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a great conversation. I would ha- I would be happy to do it again. Thank you Karin. <laughs>